This podcast is sponsored by Australian Christian College, a network of schools committed to student wellbeing, character development and academic improvement. Welcome to the Inspiration Project, where well-known Christians share their stories to inspire young people in their faith and life. Here's your host, Brendan Corr. Hi there, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Inspiration Project podcast. We hope that you're enjoying the series of conversations that we've been bringing to you with notable Christian thinkers and leaders in our society, in our community. Uh, this morning, we're delighted to welcome Mr. Andrew Scipioni uh, to conversation with us. Uh, Mr. Scipioni started his professional career in the Australian Customs Service and in 1980 joined the New South Wales Police Force with a little tenure at the National Crime Authority in between. He came back to New South Wales and was uh, appointed Deputy Commissioner in 2000 and Commissioner of Police of New South Wales in 2007, which uh, a position that he served very faithfully the people of New South Wales until his retirement in 2017. I've been busy since then with uh, many other uh, parts of life. And uh, I understand, uh, Mr. Scipioni, you were the worthy recipient of uh, an honorary Doctor of Letters from Macquarie University a little earlier. Congratulations on that achievement. Yeah, good morning, Brendan. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, look, I, 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 uh, I sometimes wonder, uh, bearing in mind that uh, I'm an old boy from Macquarie Uni. I did my uh, Masters of Business there. Um, uh, I wonder how I actually got to where I have got to. I, and, I, and I very quickly come back to how I actually got there. It's because uh, of what God's done in my life, not me. So, yeah, it was a very pleasant surprise. Thank you. I look forward to hearing a little bit about how God worked his way into your life and through your life to the things that you did. But but let me take you back. Uh, you, you have a, an illustrious career that's been high profile in our community. Uh, you mentioned looking back now that you, you found it difficult to anticipate that this is where you'd be. When you were a little, a little tacker, what were the things that were your hopes and dreams? Oh. You know, as a little fellow, I grew up in southwestern Sydney. I, I I wasn't born here. I came here as a, uh, a very young boy. I came with my parents um, from England. I was born in London, and we travelled here as um, what was then known as 10-pound poms. Mm. They were uh, migrants that were assisted. They paid 10 pounds, and they left England and came to Australia for a brand-new start. So... My aspirations weren't that high. I was just um, so incredibly grateful and so richly blessed that my parents decided to make a change and mm. to come to this nation. And so, um, I, I look, I, I left school as a young man, a young boy, really, um, and uh, probably thought that if I attained uh, the... the, uh, the credentials of a tradesman, I would have been pretty happy. Mm. So in, in coming from, you, you mentioned uh, that your family background and your arrival under that uh, supported mm-hmm. immigration program, were, were you as a young person conscious of a new start for you or, or was it too big a change for you to be aware at the, at the time? No, I wasn't. Um, I came here with mum and dad and my sister. My sister is uh, 10 years older than me, so Francis was 11 and I was one. Right. I had no real appreciation yeah. of anything uh, other than 
um, as I started to grow up, I, I became acquainted with uh, my family history mm. and I realised that I still had um, grandparents. My mother was born in Northern Ireland. I still had relatives in Ireland. Um, so it was only through the family discussions and letters from what they were calling home mm. that I became acquainted with it. But as I got older and the older I get, the more I realised just how blessed I am to be here. So um, I guess it's something that you don't really fully understand uh, until you grow a little older and a little mm. wiser. And so um, but particularly of recent times, I, I reflect on it and think just how fortunate I have been. So uh, a, a young fellow in southwest Sydney, uh, the, uh, the son of some new arrivals, new British immigrants, was, was life uh, a, a rich fulfilling experience? Were there hardships that you were faced when you were, when you were a young fellow? Oh, look, look as, a, as a boy growing up, I, I lived the life of Riley. I, we, we, we grew up in Padstow, which was an mm. area that really was um, market gardens mm. and timber yards, effectively. And uh, we had a, a creek across the road. We had uh, all sorts of Things to keep us busy in the bush. Lots of good friends in the street. So, so um, you know, I, my, my life was was nothing but good. Uh, I know that uh, um, as a as a boy growing up, I probably uh, lacked a lot of understanding around things that were really important. In fact, it wasn't until we had a young couple moved into the house next door where I was uh, living, at, which was our family home. Mm. But um, I even realised that there was a thing called church. Mm. I'd never been to church, and my parents weren't church folk. Mm. And uh, there was a young couple that moved in that just happened to be youth leaders in a local Baptist church that encouraged me to go to their church, mm. just to go to what was then known as Boys Brigade. Yeah, right. Um, so uh, it was on that basis that I that I had my first intro. Look, life was very good for me. We we really didn't want for anything, and yet we had very little. Yeah, that sounds, um, it sounds very I, ideal, I what you described, that environment, uh, the capacity to get out and have some adventures, but to do that safely, and to know yeah. your neighbours, to be a community that, that actually knew your neighbours. We'll, we'll come back to some of that in our conversation down the track, uh, Mr. Scipioni, but invitation to Boys Brigade, um, that would have happened for a lot of kids, a lot of young people have, would have gone to a youth program at a church, and, and for it to have been a passing experience, a season, that became something much more for you. How, how did that happen? How, how did it become something more central to, to your life? Well, look, um, interestingly enough, even as a young boy, I, was, I would always ask the big questions in my own mind and, and I guess I progressed as a, as a kid growing into uh, a... Uh, a young adult, and going from Boys Brigade into the youth group was a was a, a really important time in my life. Mm. As I said, the neighbours were youth leaders as well as Boys Brigade leaders. Um, my transition through was accelerated when I realised that there were these very, very important people. They're called girls. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, as a young teenage boy, I got to meet girls, which was, um, for me, um, very, very interesting, only in that I'd 
never really met girls before. I was always interested in football and cricket and catching tadpoles. So um, as a young teenager, probably just before that, I think 12, 13 it would have been, I went into the youth group and um, mixing in those circles, spending time with these folks that, that were quite strange, to be honest, and that they, they had a faith, they believed in things, um, they cared about each other. They were a little different than my friends. Mm. And uh, I soon came to the conclusion that this was probably a very good thing. And I then started asking myself the big questions as to, well, why wouldn't I want that for my life? Mm. And what was it that they had that I didn't? Mm. So it was on that basis that I, uh, I came to a point as a young 14-year-old boy where I wanted to make that decision for Jesus. And mm. uh, I did that. In fact, I did that in the house next door to the house where I was living um, on a Bible study night. And uh, I can even remember the chair that I was sitting on when I made that decision. Wow. I gave my heart to Jesus. And, you know, I, I reflect on that and I talk to that quite a bit. And uh, I jumped forward some sort of 30, 40 years and realized that over my time in the police force, I'd made some very important decisions on behalf of millions of people. Mm. But there was no more important decision than I have ever made in my life or that I will ever make until I breathe the air of heaven mm. um, than I made that night in that lounge room in that chair to give my heart to Jesus. That's and wonderful. that's how I got there. That is wonderful. I, I'm, it's so encouraging to, to hear that after decades that you can still see the, the importance of, of that moment and how a moment can, can change the course of your eternity, not just your life. Absolutely. You choose your destiny when you make those sorts of decisions. Yeah. Were, were you, obviously, it is part of the Christian story. Were you conscious that it was going to change your future as you well, made that decision as a 14-year-old? Yeah, not quite to the extent that it did because often the calm before the storm um, is is one thing, but when you're going through crisis, the decisions that you've made are often challenged and tested. Well, and I say that because as a 14-year-old boy, I gave my heart to Jesus, went home and told my parents, and they were very supportive. Mm. They didn't have a faith, but they were very supportive. Little did I know that um, within a few short months, I would be going from being still a young boy that really had no cares, concerns, um, at all to being the man of the house because my father um, died suddenly of a heart attack at home Goodness. one morning and at 14 I as I said went from being the boy to the man in the house Goodness. with um, my mother who was a um, very lonely lady when dad went because mm. her family her entire family yeah. was living on the other side of the world. Yeah. We didn't have Skype, we didn't have Zoom, we didn't have mobile phones. In fact, we didn't have contact with them other mm. than by mail, C-mail, mm. in fact, it was. So it was uh, a long time between conversations. Having said that, um, I didn't realise until then just how important this faith would be. Mm. I think when people are faced with crisis, they can go two ways, or one of two ways. They can either reject, mm and blame or they can accept and, and if you like, move closer towards 
a loving God, and and I chose to move towards Him, for I had nothing else. Mm. There was nowhere else for me to go in that regard. And it was interesting, some three or four years later, my mother um, gave her heart to Jesus really? in the same church that I was attending. And I can reflect now and 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 uh, I'm reminded of a conversation that I did have with her and said, Mum, so what was it that brought you to the point mm. where you decided that this was the way for you? She said, I just watched you. Really? I watched your life. Now, I'm not saying that I got it all right. I can assure you I didn't. Every teenage boy growing up in southwestern Sydney in, in the, the 70s is going to make mistakes, and I made truckloads of them. Mm. Having said that, she just didn't see my behaviour. She saw my heart. Yes. And that was what brought her to the point where she effectively made that decision, and it brought me to a, an understanding of one of the reasons why I did give my heart to Jesus is because I was watching these people that were calling themselves Christians, kids. Mm. They weren't getting it right necessarily all the time either. But you know what? They were living a life that was different to me. So I watched them and, mm. and um, I wanted to be sure that they were the real deal mm. and not frauds. And I came to that conclusion. Well, I guess my mum came to the same conclusion. She just wanted to see whether I was real yes. and genuine yes. about this. Because um, it could have easily been a fad. Yes. Um, but it wasn't. And she came to that conclusion. And, you know, she's gone home to meet her Lord. And uh, she did that in the full understanding and, and lived a, a great life in, in, um, in Jesus. Yeah. And subsequently married um, a man who didn't know the Lord. But shortly after. Um, they were married. He went through a Christianity Explained course with a good mate of mine and um, he gave his heart to Jesus and they had a wonderful 30 years together, which yeah. was just so good to see. Isn't what that a wonderful, that is. So, Mr. Scipione, you're talking about faith as being not just a, a set of constructs, a set of things that you hold to and believe and profess, but something that actually changes who you are in some ways. Absolutely. Uh, that Absolutely. that that growth in in your new person, your new character, in the face of that hardship, that early loss of your dad, what? Where did you find the strength to to be that new person, that new young man that that uh, was given that new life on that that night in Bible study? Yeah, very good question. Um, look, uh, I I realised now that much of what you go through in life comes about as a result of the choices that you make. Um, you know, good choices will give you a good life. Mm. Not so good choices will give you a life that leaves a lot to be desired. And that's not necessarily, you know, meaning you'll be rich and famous as opposed to poor and unknown and mm. homeless. It's not like that. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about fulfillment in life, things that money can't buy, status won't bestow, those things that really, really matter. Much of what we do in determining whether the choice is a good one or a bad one is a learned behavior. You mm. watch somebody else do it. If you're fearful and you, you know, if you see a group that's fearful, often 
you will gather and you'll actually catch their fear. It's infectious. Mm. We see this at the moment with, you know, what we're seeing around us right now, be mm. it fear about a drought that will never break or mm. bushfires that will consume us all or mm. smoke in the, in the air that will kill us or coronaviruses that will wipe out the planet. You know, the only thing more contagious than COVID-19 mm. is the fear of COVID-19. Mm. And so I realized, again, very young, that whilst fear was contagious, so was courage. Yes. You've got to see it modeled. And if you see it modeled and people live it, you can catch it. Yes. It's contagious. Well, I didn't have a father and every young man needs a dad, mm. really, to give him the clues in life, to give him an understanding of what is important mm. and how you should make good decisions and what they might look like. Mm. And I was really, really blessed in that church and in a church that I subsequently um, started attending because I've only, I've only attended three churches in my entire Christian life. But there were three men that came into my life that God put there. Mm. It took me through some of the really dangerous times in the life of a young teenager. Um, those three men taught me, first of all, how to go from being a boy to a man. Mm. And they taught me how to go from being a single man to a married man mm. and then ultimately from being a married man to a father. They taught me valuable lessons. And I just had to decide whether, in fact, I was going to catch the lessons. Mm. And and so as a young boy growing up, um, I had so much to give thanks to the Father for, mm. for these three men. Two Amen. of them are home with the Lord. One's still alive. Amen. One is still alive and, and we talk regularly. Yeah. So he's a good, good friend, a faithful friend. And, um, you know, uh, the, the blessings just didn't stop there. There was a young girl that I met in that youth group who particularly was the one when my father did die. She took a trip across the river from Peakhurst with her father. She was 14 and came and knocked on my front door. I didn't know she was coming and I hadn't really even spoken to her before. And she knocked on my door and stood there as, as I opened the door. And, and she just said, I'm really sorry to hear about your dad. Burst out in tears and then pretty well got turned around, got in the car and went home. <laughs> Little did I know that, that uh, about three or four years later I would be engaged and, really? and uh, four years, three years after that would be married. And, um, you know, today we, we have three adult children and uh, I've been blessed with, um, you know, a, a, a wonderful life with a very faithful woman who has um, taken on my name and, yes. and been such an important part of my life and my spiritual growth. So, you know, God's good, not only in Amen. terms of those who bring alongside us, but those he brings to us. There, there a stirring in, in her heart at the, the experience that you were having and the way in which uh, her, her compassion was um, absolutely evidently absolutely. part of her own, but part of God's plan or God's compassion also in, in the circumstances. Oh, look, yeah, and, and you know, that, that notion of love is a doing word, it, mm. it's a verb, it's so true, and that's what she was, she was mm. um, there for. And, you know, 42 years later, well, it was mm. still are. Yeah, that's awesome. Mr. Scipione, you, you talked about that, uh, the impact of, of that 
dramatic change in life, uh, your conversion, the loss of your dad, what, what did that mean in terms of a practical sense? What did it mean for your prospects? You're a young guy at school. <laughs> what, did, yeah, well, did it, it change your, your expectations or, or what was possible? Absolutely. Absolutely. But, but as a determined young kid, I decided that whilst it did change the circumstance, the outcome shouldn't be any different. Um, at 14, um, I determined then that I was going to continue on at school and shortly thereafter um, came to the realisation that my mum couldn't afford to pay off the house mm. and feed us and, and you know, meet all of the bills. So she actually had to go from being a day worker to a night worker so that she could get more money. Mm. Uh, I realised I would have to leave high school, so I finished after my school certificate, um, went out as a 15-year-old. I was 15 and almost 16 when I took on a, an apprenticeship as an electrician. Mm. And um, when I was so young, I wasn't allowed to work on the, uh, the equipment, in fact, to use the tools until I turned 16. And I was glad to wait a couple of months. So I was a young fellow. Yeah. But at least I was bringing in money and I was able to assist a little. Uh, and and sort of pay my own way, which allowed us to stay in the house and to, to basically um, survive. Mm. So um, it did change my outlook, but again, determined as I was, I, I was fortunate again, God blessed me with a job, I got a job, and even then, in the midst of that, we still weren't through the woods. Mm. I, I, uh, I worked for a company that was caught up in uh, a very big, Building industry collapse in the in the seventies. It was a, a company called Mainline went under, and I worked for an electrical contracting company called Hodgson and Lee. And they went bankrupt. They didn't have to find me a job, even though I was an indentured apprentice. So um, it, I was only a couple of years into my trade when it became apparent that whilst I would have liked to have waited it out and got myself another apprenticeship. I couldn't afford to, so I ended up having to go and take another job, and I joined the public service, mm. the Australian public service, um, for, for a couple of years. So, um, yeah, that was, the, the, I guess, the beginning of the change in terms of where I was meant to be and, and how I was going to be used in life. So, um yeah, the death of my father did have a significant impact, but Set the one course. would say that mm. it was for good. Yeah. yeah well, I, you can see that now, but at the time, I I guess it must have been a little bit confusing and, and maybe even a little disappointing to have your, your uh, options limited. Yeah, look, in this life, there I am certain that, that pain is inevitable. Mm. Pain is something that will touch each and every one of us, mm. if not physical, mental, if not mental, in terms of situation. So situational pain in my circumstances was inevitable, but misery was optional. Mm, that's good. And I chose not to, to, to take that option because, you know what, I had far more going for me than I did against me. Mm. Um, and why would I let that hold me down? Mm. You know, it wasn't what happened to me that would be the determinant in terms of my life, it was what I would do in response to that. Mm. It would crown whatever it was that I did. Mm, that's so good. So from the public service, found your way to the police force. Was, was that a clear well, choice for you or I, was that? Yeah, no, it wasn't. It wasn't. It was a, it's very interesting. Um, 
I I ended up going from the public service into customs. So I worked um, as a, uh, a law enforcement officer with customs, and that was at the airport on the waterfront in Sydney, and then an intelligence gathering role. Mm. Uh, and then I worked with on a joint operation a number of New South Wales police that were involved in drug investigations. It was a joint operation. And um, as a result of that, coming into contact with them, they encouraged me. They said, well, well, why wouldn't you join the police force? So I thought, well, why wouldn't I? And we had a, a police officer in our church at the time, a senior officer, who said, look, I'd like to see you go down and talk to our recruiting people. I did that. Long story short, um, I joined the, the New South Wales Police Force in 1980 and uh, as a probationary constable and has, um, had served 37 years at the time of my retirement. That's a, a wonderful career and we'll come back to some of the, the end points and the leadership that you were widely known for in those those uh, crises that you you made mention of the, the importance of crisis situations and how you respond and characteristic of your leadership I think was the calm measured controlled way in which you led through a series of those but but let me get you back to the nature of policing you you have this career 37 years of of serving the the people of New South Wales and it's a a a place it's a, a job that brings you very sharply into contact with some of the the worst aspects of human nature and, and human behaviour. How how did you preserve your sense of of uh, compass direction in the midst of of a career that was filled with with the encounters of of some of the dark things of the world? Yeah. Well, look, as I've already said, it's not necessarily those things that happen to you that determines where you end up. It's what you do in response. And you know, many of the things that I saw from from terrible scenes, you know, to, to sitting alongside people as they were dying, knowing that they were dying and trying to bring them hope and yet not being in a position to do much other than to hold their hand, um, through to seeing behaviours within an organisation that was meant to be upholding the law when in fact those, some of those minorities that were involved were significantly breaking the law. Um, going into situations where stress builds on stress and it's a bit like mercury in a fish. Mm. It adds and adds and adds and you get to the point where something has to give. And mm. uh, for many, PTSD is a, an all-consuming um, condition that, that robs people of happiness and joy and peace in whatever they're doing. Mm. You know, when you pile all of those things on top of each other, you realize we expect our police to do a lot. Yeah. And and it's it's interesting how so many of your colleagues that go through the same training, the same preparation, they work in the same locations doing the same things, some thrive and, and, and others don't. Others simply crash and burn. Um, much of that sort of pressure again, brings you back to, as I've always always said to my boys, to my daughter, to, to anyone that would listen, you know, good choices. This comes down to making good choices. If you make good choices around these things and, you know, particularly when corruption's um, sort of uh, rife and we've had a, an organisational situation leading up to the mid-90s when we had to go through a 
significant Royal Commission, if you mm. like, a, a complete organisational reset. Mm. Um, and I was working as a detective in, in a station known as Bankstown, which was right in the epicentre of hard policing in the state of New South Wales. And if it's hard in New South Wales, it is the hardest gig in Australia mm. because you know, just simply by the nature of Sydney and New South Wales being at the forefront in these areas. So um, I made a decision then that, that before I would think of myself as a police officer, I'd think of myself as a Christian. Mm. I gave considerable thought to what it was that I did, um, who I did it for, how I was going to do it, and what the the, uh, the eternal ramifications of, of my behaviour would be, not only uh, in terms of my day-to-day engagements, but my standing within Christian circles. Yeah. Um, what it would do. I, I wore, in the eyes of many that I worked with and worked for, that is the community, I stood for what was um, then known as the, you know, the, 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 the church. Mm. People would look at my behaviour and say, is that the way church and Christian people behave? Mm. And I never wanted to be the one that would be the reason why somebody would say, well, if that's what church stands for, if that's what Jesus is all about, I don't want it. Mm. <clears throat> I always thought, no, I, I need to be an ambassador, not an embarrassment. Yeah, and so um, I had to make that decision. And that decision, that, that choice that, you know, I, I would, before I was a prop, I was a Christian, was always going to to sort of rule the roost. Now, that it came at a personal price. You know, mm. I was known in, in some stations, one particular as the spy, because I wouldn't get involved in things that others would. Yes. And they obviously were very concerned that they'd be talking to people about behaviours that were unacceptable, clearly unacceptable. And uh, they were right. But having said that, um, you know, God was there and he honoured that. And, uh, you know, my career was one that, that, you know, I didn't suffer like others. I mm. didn't have the, the, the problems in terms of my, my thought processes. Um, I was never in a position where I would think twice about doing things that were corrupt, not because it wasn't the right thing to do, but because I would be letting down my Heavenly Father mm. and then my family. Mm. So, um, you know, I was, again, protected, blessed, uh, fortunate, uh, that God chose to exercise His grace around every engagement that I have, um, Mr. Scipioni, the the notion of community of society needing a police force, needing law enforcement, is, is that a, a, a regrettable circumstance that that we we need a, an organisation such as the police to hold us to account or to to keep order? Yeah, I look, look, I, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily think that police forces hold people to account. They, they simply exercise, if you like, the authority of community general to do the, the right thing. Mm. You know, the interesting thing is, in in terms of community, communities look to their police particularly for leadership. Mm. Your engagement with police generally comes about when you're either a victim or you're an offender. Mm. For too long, organisations like mine at the time focused on 
the offender mm. and saw the offender as our customer. Mm. Well, I said, no, that can't be the case. That mm. can't be the case. You know, uh, 20% of the crime, sorry, 80% of the crime that's committed in New South Wales and probably across Australia is committed by 20% of our community. And if we focus on just those 20%, that means eight out of 10 people aren't getting what we need to give, mm. and that is strong leadership, support, encouragement, and That's protection. Good. Yeah. So, so we had to turn the culture around to start thinking about the eight out of ten yeah. that we never deal with, and and so I changed my thinking. It changed it to the point where it wasn't a reflection of how bad things were that we were here and mm. the notion of it's an indictment that we need police mm. to turning it around to saying, well, we're a group of men and women that came from community mm. that upheld the things that were important to all of us, even if we never had one engagement with police in our entire lives. Mm. This group of people was their champion. The, the rights and the behaviours and the mm. protections of the things that we hold important mm. as a strike, they could speak up and speak out for people that didn't have a voice mm. when it came to what we want Australia to look like, mm. what we want your street to look like in terms of behaviours. Mm. And so I saw us as strong leaders that were very capable well prepared and trained and able to speak up for and stand up for those that didn't necessarily have a voice or couldn't stand up for themselves. Yeah. So I saw the organisation and the profession as doing something more than just there to deal with the bad people yeah. because eight out of every 10 engagements we, we had and those that needed us were people that we never had a problem. Yeah. But they still needed it. They needed that leadership. And you see it today. Yeah. You see the New South Wales Police Force, particularly at the moment, and where the commissioner stands up and starts talking on behalf of uh, a society mm. that needs people to say, right, well, we're going to take control of this. Yes. Let's deal with this and deal with this properly. Yes. It's not about catching people out. It's about making sure that life as we know it, that we value goes on. Yeah, and it great. goes on not just for today, but for tomorrow, for, for, for your kids and for their kids. Yes, um, in days to come. I, I hear in in uh, that description of yours the the thoughts that came to my mind when you were describing your early childhood. That sense of of community, that sense of stability and safety in the relationships of of society, and uh, that sort of come back in this note, this view that you brought to the police, the the enterprise of policing, that it is about leading the community in in the way in which it can function for the good of all. Absolutely. Yeah. That's the only reason we exist. I used to say to every officer that I would come into contact with when I started to have some of these discussions, we're only here for one reason, mm. and that's to support the community that we're a part of. Mm. So if everything you're doing doesn't steer back into that support, that care, that engagement, that protection, that leadership of that community, then stop doing it. Mm. You're wasting your time. Because that's the only reason we're here. Mm. Yeah, that's very good. Um, what, one last question, Mr. Scipione, if you don't mind. The, the notion of, of being involved in uh, the, the police, law enforcement, 
raises the question, or at least it could raise the question, about the technicalities of the law and what is legal versus what is moral, what is possible versus what is right. Where do you, where do you see the, the line between or the balance between those, those concepts in, in the way that our society decides how we're going to live together? Yeah, look, we're really fortunate. We live in a modern democracy. There's no dictatorship. There's the, we don't we don't live and work for um, the state. We are individuals, um, but we don't um, forget the importance. You know, it's, we're not just trees; we're part of a forest. Mm. And so, with that in mind. The laws of this country, and the laws particularly that apply in this state, um, I've got to say, by global standards, are very, very fair mm. and very, very balanced. Mm. So a law officer, a law enforcement officer, a police man or woman, is there to discharge their duties without fear or favour, without any malice or any ill will mm. um, for as long as they are charged with being a police officer. That's the sworn um, duty that an officer has. And for those of the Christians, they swear that oath in front of God. Mm. For me, that was it. Mm. Now, if there were things that I would have been or should have or could have been asked to do that was not legal, then Clearly, I had the right or the authority as, a, as an officer to say, no, I'm not mm. doing it. And that exists to this day. That's, that's the independent oath of office that every officer in New South Wales swears. So for me, um, there was never a problem mm. in terms of enforcing the laws under the criminal code that police officers are called to enforce. Um, as I said, that's, that's the beauty of living in a modern democratic society where there is good rules, you know, the rule of law is supreme. It's about mm. being fair and reasonable and just in every situation. And that's a good thing. Mm. The moral code that exists was not something the police officers were called upon mm. to enforce. Mm. The moral code that exists is something that we exercise in our own minds. And, mm. and so, you know, for me, I've seen... And people that did that really, really well. Mm. And I saw people that didn't do that so well. Mm. I saw many colleagues that made mistakes in a number of the areas that come down to moral choices and decisions. You know, and there's mm. a very old saying that says, we should learn from mistakes, mm. preferably someone else's. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, and I learned from seeing how badly things can go wrong when you get the moral side of it wrong because that's, probably as important, if not more important, than the criminal law. Mm. But that's an individual choice. Mm. So for me, there was never a conflict. As I said, look, as I got to the point where for the last 10 years, I was the commissioner mm. of the New South Wales Police Force, which was a very big organisation. New South Wales Police is 20,000 people. It had responsibility for over 8 million people. Um, the size of the state was 8 100,000 square kilometres. Wow. The budget, the last budget that I administered was over $3.2 billion. 
big numbers. We're talking a big organisation with lots of moving parts. And I was simply there as a steward. I had to look after not only those 20,000 people, I had to look after you and the eight and a half million people mm. that made up the state of New South Wales with wider responsibilities across Australia and the globe. And so, you know, my job was not an easy one. If I wanted an easier job, I probably would have gone down and started working um, on the side of the road selling carnations out of the back of the truck. Um, that was never going to be. So in my role, I had to come to that point where I started to reconcile all of the things you talked about, things like decisions that had to be made, how do we enforce the law, how do I reconcile my moral choices with my legal obligations. Yes. And in all of those things, I found it much, much easier to realise that my being in that position was never about me. Yes. You know, the, I didn't go to work thinking now, you know, who's going to serve me today? My my every day was about going to work and saying, well, what am I going to do to serve this community and this police force today? Yes, yes. My, my, it was never about me. You never forget where you come from and you, you start, you have to realise that this isn't about me. It's not about privilege. Um, and then the other thing I had to determine and, and stick to was realising before I was the commissioner, I was a Christian. I, mm. I was a, I was a, a Christian who just happened to be a commissioner, not mm. a commissioner who happened to be a Christian. Mm. And so I had to get that pecking order right in terms of my mind. Mm. It was the thing that aligned the compass every mm. day. Yeah, that's good. So I had the right direction to go in. So it was a matter of hitting the reset button, going to the compass, seeing the direction, and then sailing the course. Yes. And God looked after the rest. Far yes. too complex for me or a single man or woman to do. Um, I had to leave it all to him, and you know, he was he was faultless in his execution, mm. gracious in his application, and kind in every way in mm. terms of what I had to go through—the good and the bad. Mm. The, the situation you describe of of leading that organisation, that that incredibly important and complex organisation serving the, the state of New South Wales. And for you to break it down to the simplicity of, I've just got to be faithful to what God asked me to do today. Be, be faithful to the things that he's set my hand to today and he'll look after the rest. With your faith guiding your steps, but also I get a sense that it was a, a refuge for you to, to uh, be nurtured in your innermost being in the face of criticism and the face of crisis. It's a beautiful story, Mr. Scipioni. Well, yeah, look, I, I, I soon realised that I had an audience of one in terms of every decision I made. Mm. I just had to make sure that I realised it. Mm. Yeah, wonderful. Um, it's a, a really interesting account of how you were started from simple beginnings to become one of the, the leaders of our community in a, in a very significant way and for an extended period of time. Um, to hear how God was in that and how you can see, despite the challenges, the working of his goodness and grace. I, I am so thankful for you sharing your story with us, Mr. Skippy. Thank you. Well, Brendan, it's been a pleasure. God bless you and continue to pour Thank his you. grace into your life. 